Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. We're two PhD students with different backgrounds researching AI and technology ethics. In this episode, we interview Rebecca Finley about protecting user data privacy and human rights following the U.S. Supreme Court ruling of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. If you're unfamiliar with this ruling, here's a very quick description. On June 24th, 2022, this ruling was a landmark decision in the U.S. Supreme Court where the court decided that the Constitution of the United States does not confer a right to abortion. Although this news was local to the United States, we also discussed the global impact of this ruling in our interview with Rebecca. Rebecca Finley is the CEO of the nonprofit Partnership on AI, overseeing the organization's mission and strategy. In this role, Rebecca ensures that the Partnership on AI and their global community of partners work together so that developments in AI advance positive outcomes for people and society. In this episode, we do discuss some sensitive topics, so we recommend that you take care in the ways that are best for you. And with that, we'll head into the interview. We are on the line today with Rebecca Finley. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. I uh, listen to your podcast um, often, and I'm really honored to have an opportunity to participate and talk about this important topic. Yes, and we are honored to have you on the show to talk about this topic that is unfortunately not the best of news, but it is, as you said, very important to discuss in this uh, time in current events, and that is in the United States, the aftermath of what is called the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization ruling from the Supreme Court. So um, we were hoping to just sort of begin at the beginning here. And if you could just paint a picture and set the scene of what this ruling is, what it means, and how it relates to technology. Happy to do so. Um, Yes. So on June 24th, the Supreme Court of the United States uh, held that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion and uh, turned the authority to regulate abortion back to the people and their elected representatives uh, at the state level. And so with the decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, they overturned the longstanding ruling in Roe v. Wade, which granted access to abortion for individuals living uh, throughout the United States. The immediate implication of that ruling was that a number of states had in place what were called trigger laws. And those were laws that would regulate and constrain uh, access to abortion upon the decision by the Supreme Court. So that meant that several states immediately were able to impose uh, many constraints, in some cases, uh, complete bans on access to abortion for individuals living within those states. Um, and since then, there have been a number of other rulings, um, and there are more that are expected to come. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, uh, um, I became very, very concerned um, about the way in which women and individuals had been thinking about information that they could have been providing through health apps or 
through access through the, the platforms and browsers that they were using that they would have thought of as not being high risk at all. Uh, and suddenly were high risk. And so the implications for that and the concern about privacy is what led me and the organization to issue the statement that we did on the day of the ruling, which was really to draw attention to, in the first instance, the AI community within the US, but then even more broadly to really think about uh, the ways in which we needed to double down on protection in order to protect uh, the rights of women uh, and individuals who were no longer to have access to medical care that they had had previously. And when you say high risk, um, are we mostly talking about privacy? And if so, can you say a bit more about what we mean by privacy? Yeah, happy to do so. In this case, I think the concern is largely about privacy. When we think about privacy, broadly. So uh, in the first instance, that could be things like um, someone's browser history. If, for example, they were searching for information about access to uh, medical services like abortion, uh, it could be location information, um, both in terms of uh, geolocating that may be on their mobile device, but also location information in terms of where they're based and where they're searching. It could be in terms of the information that they're providing through a health app. There's been a lot of attention focused on what are called period tracking apps and other ways in which uh, women may be tracking their health and well-being that could be collecting data that could provide, um, again, private health data that could be accessed and potentially uh, provide information about both their health and their reproductive status as well. Um, and I think the concern really is, is around privacy is that we know that uh, data can be re-identified, even uh, if it's uh, anonymized in some way. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's studies that show that with just four data points, you can um, redetermine who and identify the individual for whom that data belongs. So really thinking about uh, privacy in this much broader way. Um, and there's been a number of initiatives to really sort of dig into this following the Dobbs decision, you may have seen, for example, the work that Mozilla has done about uh, looking specifically um, at what they call period and pregnancy tracking technology and apps. Uh, they looked at 25 different uh, apps that provide the services um, and really had quite a lot to say in terms of their extreme concerns about the protection of privacy of their users. Um, uh, that had that were using all sorts of different uh, apps in all sorts of different ways. So when I hear about these different apps being used in this data that's collected in the news, as a woman myself, it it scares me and it makes me unsure about what apps I should be using and what data I should be giving to large tech corporations. And I'm wondering if in practice, this privacy risk is actually something that I should be concerned about? Like, what are these companies actually doing with this data? Is the government knocking on big tech's door and asking them for access to this data now because of this ruling? Is this something that we might fear in the future? And right now we're still protected and it's okay. What, what is the reality of these privacy concerns? That's a great question, because I think there really is a spectrum of opinions with regard to how high risk that data is within those within those different apps or, or browsers, browsers that you might be using. So, for example, there are examples of cases where government and law enforcement agencies have asked 
uh, private companies to provide data uh, with regard to their users. Uh, and there are some specific examples with regard to health data uh, and otherwise as well. Um, and so I think that's one of the concerns is what is in place within companies to uh, both minimize the amount of data they're collecting in the first place, therefore they wouldn't have the data if it was being asked of them from uh, potential um, uh, uh, state or government or law enforcement agency, um, but also um, in terms of how the companies themselves will protect the private data of their users should in fact uh, that request be made. So I think there is a difference of opinion when you when you read across the community, but there are examples where this has happened in the past. And I think the concern is that, um, that this could potentially be an even greater issue going forward. And one of the um, interesting perspectives on that end of the spectrum is that um, there are all sorts of companies now that act as data brokers, whereby uh, data is bought and sold off of a variety of different uh, apps and platforms. And so the question is, uh, what are the protections? How do you know you may be protected in the first instance in terms of uh, the first technology that you're coming interaction with, but what happens if that data is is then sold and repurposed in some way. What is the downstream impact of that repurposing of data? Like what is the, the real fear on the ground for, um, for people of what will be done with that data? Well, I think it's, um, there is an element of not knowing what not knowing what's happening with your data. Now, I think, as you say, there are things that individuals can do, and we all should be doing anyways, whether or not um, we're thinking about private health data or other uh, private data in terms of in terms of what we're sharing and how we're limiting access and use of it with regard to our use of technology. Um, I do think that the Mozilla work that was done looking at apps and really trying to understand what different implications were, um, and some of them, they, you know, particularly, you know, one or two, they rate much more highly than others. So consumers do have a choice. You can choose um, what, uh, what apps you use, what platforms you use, how you send information online to ensure that it's encrypted. There are ways in which you can protect yourself. And something else that I'm wondering beyond, I guess, the individual response, which could be to opt out of the app entirely or to choose what kind of data to send in, is what can people who are a part of these larger corporations, organizations, institutions do to help with some of these concerns and these higher risk scenarios. Um, I know there's a lot of different places that we could take this. So maybe let's start with those at tech companies who are working in the health sector. What, what are things that they can do to try to help alleviate some of these um, really important risks? Great, great question. And that was really the, the um, the community that I was trying to speak to when I issued when I issued the statement. So clearly, companies should really be thinking about an individual tech workers at companies who are working on health applications should really be thinking about how they limit collecting, retaining, selling, transferring, otherwise any use of information that is provided to them, uh, particularly when it comes to a person's reproductive health, but of course, health data more broadly. Um, and so that really includes questions around location data, browsing and search history, it could be emails, um, any data that is specifically tied 
to reproductive health. And so that really says not only should you be minimizing the collection of data, but then also you should be protecting the collection of that data. And so this really comes to the question of encryption and ensuring that the data is kept securely um, and, uh, and is not provided, for example, to third parties. Um, and, uh, you know, there are other um, sort of more general aspects related to the way in which technology platforms can do this. So they could really think about making sure that they're keeping access to abortion information open and available um, to their users as well. So this could be through their content moderation policies or their practices, but making sure that individuals do have access to information around um, reproductive health uh, and potential uh, other areas uh, of health and well-being move forward. Um, and then, as I said, really trying to interrogate those requests that come in from uh, government uh, agencies who are seeking to access the personal health information of their users as well. Um, and uh, I think those pieces, I mean, there's some very specific things sort of around geofencing and geolocating and how to protect that data as well. But those core elements of data minimization, data encryption and protection, and then open access um, in terms of content moderation and otherwise to this information is critically uh, important. One stakeholder that I'm thinking of when we talk about reproductive health is the health system. And so I think about you know, health data and health privacy data and HIPAA, um, and that's, that's, there's a lot of complexity in that as well, but I'm wondering how you see health data and health data privacy interacting with these other topics of uh, you know, apps that don't have to be accountable to some of those systems. Yeah, uh, I think that's one of the things that uh, anybody who's using a privately developed app should really take a good look at because oftentimes access to uh, health information outside of um, the protections that are offered by uh, HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, um, uh, you really need to know your rights in terms of whether or not you're using those sorts of things. I mean, I think one of the interesting things was that Following the Dobbs decision, uh, the Biden administration did issue uh, an executive order um, asking the Federal Trade Commission to consider steps to protect consumers' privacy when they seek information about the provision of reproductive health care services and to consider additional actions, including potentially under HIPAA, to protect sensitive information related to reproductive health care. So, I do think there is an important role as well for um, for those governments that want to ensure protection of access to those reproductive rights, um, that those are in place and potentially there are some mechanisms there uh, through that particular order. Now, I'm no lawyer and I do not have a background at all in policy. So um, I, I'm assuming some of our listeners as well probably have not read the full Supreme Court ruling and don't understand the nuances of what actually is allowed by the government when they're trying to access data and when they're trying to learn who to possibly um, you know, incriminate because they're breaking this, this new law. And what I'm wondering is like pragmatically, what is the government allowed to ask these tech companies for? What are they allowed to know and what are they allowed to do? Yeah. So um, 
I am also not a lawyer, so I want to just absolutely say that uh, uh, front and center in terms of responding to the question. The uh, uh, law enforcement agencies and government, if they feel that a law has been broken, can uh, request information from companies with regard to their user uh, practices. Um, what that means under this particular ruling and in those states that have decided to put in place more restrictive uh, regulations and rules uh, remains to be seen. Uh, but there is definitely, um, um, you know, there are many companies who are responding um, frequently to requests uh, with regard to those sorts of things. In fact, one of the interesting uh, announcements that did come out uh, in uh, in July was that Google announced that they were going to delete user location history for abortion cl clinic visits. So they really wanted to get ahead of the potential uh, requests that might be coming in with regard to this information about their users. So they, they announced that they were going to delete user location history whenever, whenever their users visited an abortion clinic, a domestic violence shelter, or other similarly, similarly sensitive places with the idea being, therefore, that that would really limit the amount of information should they be asked to provide it for a potential prosecution. But I am wondering why more companies in this space who are implicated here are not taking more steps. Is it because it's unclear what those steps are, or is it because there's just like a huge value gap uh, between some of these stakeholders? Yeah, that's that is a question I can't answer. It's a I think you know we could speculate on all sorts of um, reasons why it's it's tricky, um, and it's it's clear that um, there we know around data minimization and protection and encryption um, how important those are with regard to data usage and. You know, one, one can only hope that we'll see that some of the work that's being doing, for example, by Mozilla, by um, some of our partners like the Electronic Frontier Foundation and others will really um, advocate for changes to happen in that space. Something that we've discussed before in different interviews on this show, and it's also just a broader topic in the uh, responsible tech community, is the ways that these kinds of decisions, whether it's through the Supreme Court or through um, technological design, how they impact people disparately. And so sometimes certain people are disproportionately disadvantaged by a certain decision than others. And I'm wondering, with this ruling in mind, are there specific populations or communities of people who are, I mean, despite the, like, obviously this is targeted towards women, <laughs> but beyond that, are there certain communities that are disproportionately disadvantaged because of this decision? Well, yes. And of course, those those communities that are most disproportionately disadvantaged are those uh, individuals who live within states where they no longer have access to these reproductive uh, health care um, and may be surrounded by other states where they don't have access to care either. So if you are um, uh, disadvantaged in terms of your economic capacity to travel, to take time off of work in order to be able to to get um, to a clinic that's quite far away. There's a really interesting uh, New York Times map that shows, um, you know, the numbers of, of number of hundreds of miles that some 
uh, women's and women and individuals would have to travel in order to get access to those clinics. So we know that that means that those are communities that are marginalized, they're often racialized, um, and just do not have the resources to be able to get to the care that they need. Um, and uh, and then, of course, in addition to, to women, I also think about those individuals who are professionals, uh, the professionals who are providing this care um, and may be um, putting themselves at risk in terms of trying to help and serve communities that may no longer have access um, to, uh, to abortion services that they may have had in the past. Can you say a bit more about the providers in this? Are there is there a, a technological perspective, um, not even necessarily to the ruling, but is there a sense of how technology is either uh, assisting a barrier to, um, just in terms of the clinician perspective for reproductive care? Yeah, I think it's it's just exactly the same issue as as one would think about for an individual who's looking for information, right? If if you're an individual who's trying to provide information online. Um, then, of course, you want to be very sensitive with regard to your personal information um, and how you go about protecting that in order and at the same time, um, making sure that you're able to um, be able to promote uh, and share the places where you could provide support. Um, so I think there's the same issues around making sure that you're protecting your privacy, that you are um, using services that allow you to encrypt your messaging and all those sorts of things. And again, uh, the, it's the potential, right, for this to, to have an issue. Um, and it really, again, does depend on where you're based and uh, how you're offering those services. I think we've done a, a pretty good job now of painting a unfortunately bleak picture of what is the reality around this issue. And um, on this show, we, we do like to be realistic and to share the things that are maybe not so great in the news that are happening, but we also like to paint a vision of the future and ways to alleviate some of these unfortunate challenges and, and negative consequences, whether intended or not, that are happening in society. So I guess transitioning from the, the bleak present to the hopeful future, what are some things that you are feeling hopeful about that are um, maybe design decisions or um, uh, regulatory efforts or uh, uh, group efforts to, to try to help improve some of these issues going forward? Yeah, so I think there is just this remarkable community of, and many of the women who are really leading in the field of AI and healthcare and are beginning to really understand um, the way in which, as you so well cover on this particular podcast, all of the socio-technical challenges related to deploying algorithmic systems, all the way from biases in the data sets through the biases in the structures and the systems within which uh, algorithmic systems are being modeled. And so I think there are, um, I think that there's a much better understanding of some of the the challenges and beginning to have an exploration of some of the opportunities to that work. Some of the work we've been doing over the last year is in partnership with a coalition for healthcare and AI, specifically trying to look at what are some of the best practices, guidelines, guardrails that really need to be put into place if we're thinking about deploying AI in the healthcare system and what does it mean in terms of inclusivity, uh, designing with equity, um, and making sure that the um, 
the decisions and predictions that come out of these models um, are, um, are reliable and trustworthy and as transparent as they can be. Um, so I'm very happy to see that community really emerging around this question and around the possibility for thinking what this means. Um, I had an opportunity, um, uh, and I would highly recommend to anyone who hasn't had a chance to see it, to uh, look at this amazing list of resources that have been developed by the Center on Privacy and Technology as part of their Color of Surveillance, Policing of Abortion and Reproduction Reading List. Um, I hope we can put it up uh, on your website afterwards. It's, there's a great list of, um, of uh, stories and essays and articles specifically looking at this question through all of the intersectional ways in which um, healthcare and women, uh, reproduction and technology um, have intersected over the last several, several years. I was struck uh, at the beginning of that answer when you were talking about who is doing some of this advocacy and research. You said, you know, many of which are women, right? And that's something that I've heard from um, a fair amount of colleagues who are either researching or doing advocacy with this work. And I'm also, again, aware of my positionality as a man in this space. And I'm not seeing, even after this decision, especially around technology in the technology sector, I'm not seeing a lot of folks who look like me um, speaking out against this. And so I'm wondering, almost as an aside right now, but I'm wondering for folks who may be male, um, whether they're impacted directly or are impacted indirectly by this issue, like what, what, what would you say? What would your invitation be? Well, I always recommend uh, one particular research project, which I think is illustrative of how we need to think about deploying AI uh, in healthcare settings. And uh, one of the leads on it is is Mark Sendak. So it's Sendak et al. It's uh, uh, proceedings out of ACM. It's called The Human Body is a Black Box, uh, Supporting Clinical Decision-Making with Deep Learning. You probably know this well. This is the work that was really developed around the deployment of Sepsis Watch, which is a deep learning model uh, to predict uh, the severity of infection that can come uh, from, sepsis, from sepsis in uh, patient populations. And one of the amazing things about this particular research project is that they began it from the very beginning, exploring the deployment of this model as a socio-technical system that required integration into the existing social and professional context within they want, which then which they wanted to deploy it. So it was interdisciplinary in nature right from their very beginning. It worked very, very closely with the teams of healthcare professionals who were already in place in the clinical setting to better understand how to deploy and make this work for them. And they came up with these really four key values and practices. First, rig rigorously define the problem. As we know, it is often the case that is right in how the problem is defined in AI um, that we see bias and assumptions and uh, integrating into that work. So rigorously define the problem in context. So in the context within which it's going to be deployed, build relationships with stakeholders, respect professional discretion, and create ongoing feedback loops with stakeholders. So this real notion of intentionally questioning each step of the development all the way from how we define the problem in context through to the data, through to the model development, through to the hard work of understanding how to integrate it in, 
into professional healthcare practices. Um, it's just, a, I think it's a really great uh, uh, piece of work and it really speaks to how we need to be thinking about how to deploy AI so that it's responsible, trustworthy, and really focuses on all of the issues that uh, we know that are so uh, in intensely critical when we're thinking about uh, healthcare settings. And thinking a bit more about how this ruling implicates the future of technology design, I'm, I'm st stuck a little bit on privacy. And we mentioned a bit of this earlier in this conversation, but I, I'd love for us to go a little bit deeper about um, privacy design and technology. And this was something that was really fascinating at the beginning when this podcast launched in April 2020. And we spoke with Seda Gerses uh, in one of our very first episodes about um, COVID tracking and how like privacy implications in health were just a really contentious topic that people didn't really know what to do with. Because there are some benefits of tracking data and collecting data on the one hand, but then there's these obvious negative consequences that you know mostly have to do with privacy when it comes to over collection or a misuse of that data. So I'm wondering how this ruling um, might potentially change the trajectory for privacy design in technology in the future or ways that it could inspire or motivate us to do better. You know, I think one of the interesting things about privacy are all the dimensions of privacy and all of the ways in which we think about privacy from where we sit, from the context that we're in. Um, uh, and, and all of the elements there. And, and, I, and I know that Seda would have spoken uh, at length about, about all of those, in, uh, of those questions specifically. I mean, that, that question of COVID and, and tracing apps really, um, really put that into, into fine point. And uh, that was some of the work that I had done uh, as well during that time. So, um, but I, I do think there's some really interesting questions for privacy beyond just individual privacy and the concerns therein. And uh, we've been doing some of this work um, related to algorithmic fairness and decision making. And how do you better understand the challenges associated with ensuring that algorithms are fair and therefore um, are not discriminating? And what does that, what are implications are that in terms of how much data needs to be uh, in the data set and what data is in there and why the data is in there that is in there, both historically and structurally and otherwise. Um, but also in terms of how uh, individuals within a data set and communities within a data set may be implicated differently from a privacy perspective. Um, so we talked a little bit about being able to re-identify individuals within data sets, but there are also connections that are made within, um, within algorithmic models as well between individuals in order to classify, in order to make decisions. Um, and so there are implications on the group or community level as well. And I think that's a really important area of research moving forward. I think the other piece is that we're starting to see some technological approaches to how to protect privacy as well. Um, and I think there are, I think there are a lot of questions and open questions about those technological approaches and how, how well they work and and really what might the trade-offs be in terms of how they're um, deployed as well and how do we understand them within the social and structural systems that they're being developed. So I think there are some really important questions related to privacy um, 
that the field needs to focus on beyond beyond the ones that we've been talking about today specifically with regard to this ruling i'm thinking about I guess the local element of the fact that this is a ruling Dobbs versus Jackson that happened in the United States. And then we have the state level of uh, the trigger laws that we saw come into effect. Um, but then your organization and also, you know, you're in Canada. So this is obviously not just a, a U.S. based issue. Um, and I'm wondering if we could say a little bit more, if you could say a little bit more about um, when we think about the international community, how do we think about the scale of either women's health or health generally? Like what, what is the impact on this international scale? So I think that's why, you know, we put the call out to the international community because we really wanted to use it as um, a moment when we could all be thinking about the ways in which um, there may be concerns about privacy, but also the usage of um, uh, individual and private data by um, by potential authoritarian regimes, for example, um, and the concerns therein. Uh, but also in terms of building on the work, for example, in the EU with the general data protection um, regulation, and what does that mean in terms of uh, uh, privacy moving forward in the EU AI Act? It's, it is. It remains one of the central questions for the AI community is to think about how do we uh, best protect privacy within the way in which um, current models are using AI, for example, uh, through engagement and through advertising and all sorts of other things as well. So, um, and of course, as you know, there's an international community of researchers who are focused on these questions. Um, and, um, you know, there's all sorts of questions when you think about potential surveillance of workers. Um, and we think about how so many of those workers now are based in low to middle income countries as well. So they're outside of uh, the United States. So thinking about those questions of privacy, um, worker well-being and worker rights are all uh, important areas of work, I think, for the community moving forward. As we move towards the closing of this conversation, I'm, I'm brought back to the day when this ruling was made and just how much anger and fear I felt and I witnessed those around me feel from this ruling and its impacts. And I think that those emotions are still there, largely. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or advice for people who feel anger or who feel fear or who feel confusion and feel that lack of agency to do anything. What, what can we do today to help us gain some of that agency back? Take a look at the apps that you have on your phone. Take a look at the privacy settings that you have on your browser. Um, be cautious, be careful, think about um, what information you are sharing beyond health information, um, and do so to take back your, uh, your right to own and control that data. Um, and uh, I think for me, um, that has been part of my learning through this process. Um, as a woman uh, and, and, and reading and learning, it, it, this, this has been, we have seen the ways in which um, tech has been deployed against communities of color for many, many years. And empowering those communities and empowering ourselves to, to take back 
uh, the uh, control that we have over our data and to make those decisions, I think, is, is a critically important first step. There's lots of, of, it, of information available online. I know you're going to share out a bunch of resources with this. I, I strongly encourage people to read the materials that were produced on the day of the ruling from the Center for Democracy and Technology, from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I've mentioned the work that Mozilla has been doing. There are many other organizations, really great resources available that we've connected to on our website, but uh, I know you will as well. Um, and then finally, you know, um, for me, it all comes back to making sure that as an AI community, we are including those voices that are most impacted by our technology in the development process and um, really understanding that there are, we need to hear those voices as we develop this work um, and think about how in which we respect the burden of labor to be engaged in that work um, and to integrate that perspective right from the very beginning um, as we move forward. And I think that's that's my my call to the community as well as how do we do that? We talked we've talked a little bit about the implications in the US. We've talked a little bit about the implications internationally. How do we bring those voices uh, into the conversation right from the very beginning? That's the challenge for all of us. I am wondering, um, because you, you have your own hat on, but then you also have the, the partnership on AI hat on, um, if folks did want to plug into the work that you're doing specifically on this issue, uh, could you just say uh, briefly what, um, what you all are up to and how people can get involved? Absolutely. Happy to do so. So please uh, go to our website, www.partnershiponai.org. Lots of resources available there with regard to all of the initiatives that are in place across our work on fairness, transparency, and accountability, inclusive research and design, as I just mentioned. We do work also on media integrity, misinformation um, in, in that world as well, and also in labor and the economy. So if there's any uh, of that work that is of interest to individuals who are listening to that podcast, please take a look. You can sign up to be involved in any and all of those activities. Um, and of course, you can reach out to me directly as well. Well, Rebecca, unfortunately, as these things go, we are out of time. But thank you so much for sharing with us the important work that you are all doing in this space and for helping us make sense of some of the things in the world that don't quite make sense right now. Thank you so much. I really appreciated the opportunity to be with you. We want to thank Rebecca again for this conversation. As usual, we'll do a very brief outro, um, but besides that, we do invite folks to check out the resources that Rebecca was just naming that, of course, you'll find in the show notes. But uh, Jess, let's start with you. What are you thinking? Oof. This is a hard topic to talk about, as are a lot of topics on this show, but this one especially hits close to home for me. and. Um, I, I mentioned this a little bit in the interview about my own personal experience with the aftermath of this ruling in the States. And um, something that I, I didn't really mention as much was my own uncertainty about which apps I should be using on my phone or I guess deleting on my phone and not using anymore because of this ruling. And um, I also come from a state and have a lot of friends and family in states that had those trigger laws. 
and I, I worry about them and, and what apps they are using and what data they are sharing with large corporations. And I guess something that came to my mind, taking this, I guess, sort of removing um, myself from the topic of the ruling and just thinking more broadly and generally about this uncertainty and this fear of sharing data, I guess I see this as a really good opportunity for not just women, but for all tech users to assess how much data we are sharing with large organizations and corporations right now and to really think through our digital footprint. And um, the unfortunate reality is that, you know, big tech companies don't have as much of a vested interest in our privacy as we probably do. And sometimes the more convenient and easy thing to do, oftentimes the more convenient and easy thing to do is to just give your data away because it allows for more ease of use in a lot of circumstances, a lot of platforms. But this ruling was just a really good um, moment, at least for me and, and maybe for a lot of other people too, to, to recognize that maybe efficiency and ease of use and user experience is not worth sharing that data sometimes and there is a reason to to hold our data closely and to be concerned about privacy in online platforms especially because future rulings could cause you know some data that maybe we don't think is quite as sensitive now to become more sensitive in the future like this one did so that's sort of i guess my maybe broad takeaway is that this is like a, a moment of recognizing that reality, that unfortunate reality, and trying to pivot my actions to help with my own personal privacy and, and that of my family and friends going forward. What about you, Dylan? Yeah, so a lot of what I'm researching right now is around health, and some of it's adjacent to privacy, a lot of it's adjacent to general well-being and how we design for well-being. And um, this was a very humbling conversation for me because I realized how little I've, I've read about women's health and technology and how little I was aware of what um, the advocacy work is that's being done um, out in the world by folks like Partnership on AI and other colleagues. And so I think for me, I'm just going to keep my comments really brief um, and I'm seeing my role as, as a listener role of going through the resources that Rebecca shared, um, trying to connect with other colleagues and seeing where um, I can plug in. Um, because I think one thing that Rebecca really drove home is that activity is important, right? To remain active um, and to try to, to change um, something and do, do work to, to change something um, about these systems who are, are not working on behalf of everyone. Um, so I'm going to just close my, my comments at that. Um, but as always, if you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. You can catch our regularly scheduled episodes the last Wednesday of every month with possibly some bonus episodes in between. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod if you haven't already. And do not forget, there are so many resources that Rebecca shared during this interview and that we've also curated and compiled and put in the show notes, which you can find at RadicalAI.org. And as always, stay radical.